Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. Today I have the pleasure of chatting with Danielle Evans from Marmalade Blue in Columbus, Ohio. This Midwestern designer and illustrator creates food typography and dimensional lettering. You can get all of today's show notes on our website at obsessedshow.com. Also check us out on Twitter. We are at obsessed show and I am at Josh miles. While you're at it, head on over to iTunes and give us a rating and be sure to hit that subscribe button. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Danielle Evans. Okay, guys, today I am excited to welcome Principal of Marmalade Blue, designer and illustrator, creator of food typography and dimensional lettering, Danielle Evans. Danielle, thanks for being on Obsessed with Design. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I was uh, checking out your website, and of course, I love that you say Marmalade Blue is the taste-making studio of designer and lettering artist Danielle Evans. I just think that's a very elegant way to put it. Thank you. You would be surprised how long it took to come up with that. (laughs) (laughs) I just redid my website about, uh, I would say like four months ago, really. And in working through it, um, I had to rewrite my own copy three or four times because it's really just about getting in the headspace of who you are, Mm -hmm. you know, and how you initially put yourself out there and just trying to be true to that all the time. It's hard. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I would imagine too, you've got to the constant urge of, okay, do I want to set this headline in uh, mashed potatoes or do I want to? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of nuts. I almost wish I had a drop down screen where I just pick from things. Just start doing that. <laughs> exactly. Well, I was trying to remember, I would, I felt like I had met you somewhere before, but as we were talking a little bit before the call, maybe I just hallucinated the whole thing. Maybe I just feel like I've seen you on enough videos and stuff that we've maybe been at conferences together that um, so, so I made that up. So good for me. I don't know. Me. I mean, I've, I've heard I have a pretty like, I don't know, recognizable face or like someone familiar face. I would say you have a familiar face. So maybe, maybe <laughs> we're not making this up. All right. <laughs> Who knows? Well, maybe the origin of our connection was just uh, over email when I invited you to be on this chat. But speaking of origin stories, let's talk about how you got into design initially. What kind of brought you to this universe? Yeah, that's a good question. So I started as an illustration major in school and actually graduated with that degree, but not before finding a love of type, just kind of one of my last semester courses. I was like, oh, I'll I'll try this on for size. And I loved it. Um, I loved how letter forms had purpose and meaning, like inherent value. Whereas with a a picture, you're trying to figure out what it means sometimes, or it's not always clear, very abstract in purpose. And so I, I loved that you could, um, storytell and be very creative and individualistic with illustration, but with design, you had like structure and rules and hierarchy and things that sold the story. So I was kind of astride these two ideas And because I had discovered this love um, so late, I was like, well, I don't really know how to make a career out of this right now. Um, (laughs) My my college experience was a jumble of, you know, I'm not a great painter, so I'm not a a painter. Um, I'm not like I'm good at drawing, but not in a traditional sense. People were looking for more like character design, and that was not my interest. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved photography, but I was too poor to afford equipment. I was great at sculpting, but I'm like, there is no, (laughs) there is no career in this. I'm not dropping like, uh, I don't know, 60 grand just to enjoy sculpting part time. So I had all these weird little interests that were kind of percolating on the surface of my career, but I couldn't figure out how to jumpstart any of them. And so when I got done with school, I, I graduated during the housing crisis. So there were no jobs. So I worked the first three or four years at a shoe store, a restaurant, container store. Um, I did all kinds of menial, trivial, shitty things. And I hated myself all the way through. (laughs) I took part-time, part-time gigs at different agencies where I had to walk like a mile and a half, both directions every morning in the snow and the rain to get to these things. Um, 
ask for, you know, a dollar raise because I was doing more than the job description and I wouldn't get called back. I, I had a really rough initial work experience and I felt pretty worthless. And so in a depressed state of feeling hopeless, of um, struggling to get really thoughtful freelance clients or people that appreciated my work and didn't just want me to, you know, do what they couldn't do. Essentially, I started exploring my love of lettering, which I had come across in, at college. And I was exploring it professionally. I hadn't put any of my personal projects out before. And I was playing with paper. I was playing with like, you know, objects very minimally, but I decided really to jump into this idea of food um, because I told a friend once that I wanted my work to mean something to people and to speak to them in a way that wasn't strictly um, visually related. And she said, well, why don't you just, you know, you're drinking a cup of coffee. Why don't you just make something out of coffee? And so that sparked this interest. And I found food is cheaper than art supplies by a lot. It's also more resourceful. Um, and so I started feeling very free and all of a sudden all of these interests combined into this, this weird career. And um, it wasn't until Alan Peters from Target had tweeted that they were looking for a lettering person to help them on a campaign and all these people had contributed their, their portfolios. And I was late. I was like three hours late. And I went, okay, the internet dictates that this project is over by now. It's awarded and it's already done. Mm -hmm. uh, There's no way I'm going to get this. But I took a risk, which wasn't really much of a risk. I was just, you know, putting my work out there and seeing what happened. And Alan called me and was like, you know, we want to do this project with you. How soon can we talk about this? When can you get here? And so that job sparked this as my career. And so I've been very fortunate to continue doing this. It's been about three years, a little more than that now. And yeah, I'm very, very happy with, with what I'm doing and excited to keep moving. Very cool. And well, so the, the idea that you were interested in, you know, painting and type and sculpting and photography, you sort of get to do all of those things now with, with kind of your approach to food typography. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of, I started realizing um, when you work at an agency or in-house, oftentimes you have a solitary job, one description, and that is all that is asked of you because there are like five other people that are hired to do other things. And that's great. But I realized that I had more to offer than simply one role. And so when people were asking me, hey, you know, would you make something out of meat? I'm like, hell yeah, I will. <laughs> but I got to go find a board. <laughs> I have to go get some groceries. Like I have to figure out what this is going to look like. And so I'm doing all this copywriting and sketching and um, like molding and designing and photo and retouching. And so I'm enhancing all of these skills and basically becoming this whirlwind art director in a weird way. And so mm -hmm. it's been really interesting trying to navigate, hey, this is what I do because it's so general, um, but really it's generally all the things I love to do. So I'm really curious about the process maybe first from the business standpoint. So is it, is it just you or do you have an agent or how do you, how do you go about sourcing work and executing on it? Sure. Well, I actually, I do have an agent. I've had an agent for two years and I had two different ones. And this one is um, reach based out of Chicago. They rep Lauren Hum and John Contino and Tegan White and all sorts of really talented people. Dan Cassaro is on their roster as well. Stefan Sagmeister. Um, they're fantastic, fantastic people. And they have been instrumental in helping to keep me pushing forward. Um, they're the kind of guys that like you want to, you thank them for bringing in work. Um, <laughs> you're happy to write them a cut <laughs> right. and you know that they've earned it. And so that part is really fantastic. I, my studio is very fluid in the sense that it is just me. I mean, right now I'm sitting in what would be a dining room in my house, but it is where I work. Um, I have lights and whatnot that are hidden in the closet, light bouncers underneath of my work table. I've got all sorts of props <laughs> around here. And usually like my house is covered in, in fruit or peanuts or whatever the thing is I'm working in. It is just usually spread everywhere in here and it's smells funny, but <laughs> I find that um, on smaller projects, I can handle the bulk of this work myself from this space. Mm -hmm. um, occasionally, if 
if the budget allows and if we need more more help, um, I bring in photographers or stylists or other other designers to help me out. And I love to champion their ideas and, and share in, in working with them. I think that's really fun. Um, but if the project is larger, like a campaign or a commercial or something like that, where more is required, then I ship out to different locations and work. So the beauty of it is figuring out how big the project is and how fluid everything is and whether or not, you know, we can make things make things work within the means. So it's funny how my initial career started as being very resourceful and trying to just be like being scrappy. Yeah. But that has continued into this very professional setting where it's like, okay, I know how to spend money if I need to spend money to either be impressive or, or to have the finest of whatever it is. If, if that's what people value when they hire me, then I can do that. But if they need something that's like on the fly and lo-fi, but looks high class, I can do that too. And that's kind of, that's a fun visual challenge and a good problem to solve. So you mentioned doing some copywriting. I'm curious, do you, um, I would assume you have to get the uh, the message approved before you can start, you know, smearing it around in coffee beans or something. But do you also um, kind of sketch out where you're going with it or do you fake it in Photoshop for a minute to try to get the, the agency or the client to sign off on it? Or do you just kind of get on the table and make it happen and then whatever whatever shows up is what you go with? I have done all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Um, usually if I'm going to sketch, I'm going to use, um, the paper app mm-hmm. on my iPad with oh, yeah. pencil stylus. And when I do that, it's because I am, I, I don't want to be beholden to sketches. I found that whenever I was using paper and pencil, I was really careful, like wanting it to be super perfect and delicate. And I'm like, yeah, this is stupid. <laughs> this is not helpful <laughs> for anybody. Um, whereas with something digital, I can basically throw it away but I can still get color very quickly and size relationships. Um, usually it's just like a shitty placeholder. So I don't spend any time on this and I go, Hey, this is about the sensibility we're going for. So as long as you're down with that, I'm going to make some tweaks in real life. Uh, we've had a couple times, like for example, I've done a, several target campaigns and one of them, we didn't have time for concept, but the turnaround was so tight that we were changing things on the fly at the shoot. Like I started work and mm. they go, no, actually we want a different board or we're changing the copy like while you're doing this. And so there was mm. a lot of like, how do I be flexible? Okay. Well then if this is going to change, then I'm just going to do it because we don't have time and we're going to see what happens. And so the point, the balance of realizing that people trust me, that is huge. I don't know how many people are willing to spend money without knowing exactly what they're getting. And so mm. I'm doing my best to be whole, like to be, um, thoughtful about those processes. And I try to minimize the surprise as much as humanly possible. I feel like that's the kind thing to do and the right thing to do. And I think most people come away from those experiences feeling like they got something exciting and they appreciated it. And they were, they were part of, part of something different. And that's, that's fun. I enjoy inviting people in. Have you ever had that, uh, that one Snickers commercial moment where you were supposed to be spelling chiefs and you realize you spelled chefs or. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, the times I have done that, they've been in other languages. So I don't feel too badly, <laughs> but I remember one time I had to do something out of yogurt and I was leaving to go to another job in Europe the next day. We couldn't get approvals. Every, the time zone thing was messing everything up and. Mm-hmm. Finally, like I get it approved. I leave and then they call me and they're like, Hey, this isn't spelled right. And I'm like, Oh God. <laughs> so I had to go home and I, like, as soon as I got off the plane, I had to do it again. Oh and, man. Yeah. Photoshop it and do everything I could to save it. And it works, but it was just like, <laughs> so painful. <laughs> it happens. It happens. <laughs> Well, tell us about what a, what a normal day is like for you. Are you just, you know, on the, on the board doing stuff all the time or are you, you know, is most of your week spent doing email and having more sales or approval kind of conversation or what's, what's your typical work week look like? I think people would be surprised and maybe unsurprised to know that it fluctuates. Clearly I'm a big fan of change. I don't like a ton of consistency all the time. I like new things and new experiences, and that is part of what keeps me moving. So during the week, it's almost like a coffee shop. Like one of my first jobs was working 
at a coffee shop for my school. And I remember we'd have these long spans of time where it would just be really slow. And so you'd be doing maintenance, you'd be um, doing inventory and kind of checking some stuff out, maybe looking into new products. But then the rush would happen and the rush would be there for like an hour and you'd just be like full tilt, just knocking out drinks and trying to service people. And then, you know, you'd get a chance to be down. And so my schedule is very much like that. I've been trained to expect that kind of a schedule. So Mm -hmm. if I have a job come in often, it's multiple pieces. And so it's going to be three or four, um, maybe more than that in the course of a week. I think my most, the most pieces I've ever done at once were like 11, um, in the course of three and a half days. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And I've gotten close to that as well, multiple times. So it's just kind of this long marathon of content creation uh, that can be kind of nuts. But I basically try to take it easy as much as possible up until those times. I make sure I get sleep. I have a good breakfast. I show up in the morning and I do all the planning beforehand so that when I get there, the day of the shoot, smooth sailing, smooth sailing the whole time. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that, then I have to have a couple days to crash. So it, I mean, I could, it, it just varies like so much, but I'm trying as much as possible to, when I have downtime, oh, I'm online posting things or I'm trying to propagate new work or updating my site. I'm speaking to people about new opportunities. I, I don't do as much running for jobs, like hustling for jobs. A lot mm-hmm. of them are finding me, but that fluctuates as well. And so I have to just be sensitive to when things are tapering and always trying to strike a balance. Cool. I love that, um, especially, well, for any of our listeners who haven't checked out your Instagram feed or some of the videos on your website, those are definitely must check out recommendations, but I love, especially on the website, all of the video that you have of the work is, do you see that as being a, um, increasing part of the project is capturing the process of a video as opposed to just the 2d image when you're done? Yeah, it, it is. It's becoming more and more. I almost feel like Instagram has propelled this trend and it has become basically a streaming YouTube situation where you can just scroll mm-hmm. through and observe videos and people are responding now more that um, Instagram has really angled themselves towards motion. People are responding to motion even more. I remember starting to use motion um, even a year and a half, two years ago and People were just not, they didn't know what to do with it. They wanted stagnant images. <laughs> right. And so now it's like my stagnant images aren't doing as well. People want the videos. And so it's yeah. just all, it, it's funny how motion, motion describes the passing of time. It just is inherent time. And I think a lot of the interest in my process and in how people like to film my process videos is just seeing how intricate how, how I start with these very large plans, very broad, almost like sketching with my hands and then refining all the way down to a point of finish, um, to doneness. And I think that is really interesting because a lot of us are searching for that moment where you can say that is done, that is finished. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that once you discover it, you can't lose it, but it takes forever to find. I think one of the maybe most cathartic or maybe most settling unsettling elements in your videos is the wipe. So when you've got the project done and there's so many of your videos where you then wipe the whole project off into the trash. So tell us, (laughs) tell us about the emotional part or maybe the unemotional part of that, of the project for you. Sure. I find that I love wiping something away. There's usually a moment, even when I'm working Um, And I realized that I haven't tackled this properly. I haven't used the material the way I should have or the way that it was most natural in my first instinct. Mm -hmm. And so I have to make a decision like at what point do I need to cut this off? When is it time to cut it off? And so I have to make that decision sometimes and and start over. But I feel that I can do that because I've taught myself something, Mm -hmm. even in that first failure, that I can use to make better work. I think that's very much applicable to how we live our lives And so I think when a piece is finished, it makes me think of some sort of like weird Yoda-esque mantra from (laughs) school where people are like, it's all about the process. And you're like, what the hell does that mean? I don't know what that means. But really, I've come to find for me, it means taking delight in learning about these things and mastering something in in the time it takes you to work on it so that when it's over, you can be like, I learned 
but I don't need to keep this anymore because the next thing I do will be better. And so for me, where people are like crying <laughs> or like, no, <laughs> as my hands like coming across to ruin it, I find that that can actually be in its own way an act of creation. And I think that's where me playing with motion started to come from was realizing the deconstruction is usually a way to construct something new. So just trying to look at all of these, the birth and death of something as, as you know, steps towards something else. I think especially the, um, the one that, that like had shock factor to me was the, the bed sheets on the Vegas mm. one when they pull the blankets back and then the sheets go away. Yeah. And I just, I just had this <gasps> moment when I saw the, the type go away. We were like, we can only do this once. So me and my, my assistant, we were like practicing what to do. And then after we did it, I like stood up and went, turn down from what? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a worst joke ever, but that's kind of my life right now. I'm a professional dad. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that, but somehow I didn't see that joke coming. Yeah. <laughs> that's really unfortunate. You should have. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work on that. I'll put that in my repertoire. <laughs> So I think it's really cool that your career and the the work that you're most famous for kind of started as this side thought of what to do with coffee. Mm-hmm. But it makes me wonder, are there, are there other side things that you're doing right now? Are there other things that you're planning on, working on, thinking about? I mean, I, I try to give myself time to work on side projects. It's a great option rather than sobbing when things are slow, feeling like your life is done. Um, <laughs> I feel like everybody does that, really. If you're freelancing and, and the work dries up, you suddenly feel like you're irrelevant. And really, it just means you need to generate something new. And so for me, I've, I've taken on a project with my friend Shauna Panchezen, but it's she goes by Parmesan. And we do mean trills where we take mean girls quotes and we letter them in some fashion or bring other people in to do the same. And we share those with people. That's pretty pretty exciting. I ended up looking up a... <laughs> I caught myself looking at Letterman jackets, trying to figure out if I could make a mathlete thing and (laughs) end up calling people being like, will you guys do a custom patch for me? (laughs) It's really weird. I had this short lived project, but I think it's time for me to get back on it called your baby is beautiful, where I take my face and put it on someone else's kid. (laughs) It's, it's delightful. And I think the joke therein is that they all look like me. But at the same time, I started the project because I, I hate the way I look in photos. I do not picture well. I'm just not a photogenic person. And so, I don't know, it's, it's almost like a lethargy, or, sorry, a cathartic thing, realizing um, I, I'm not interested in having kids right now, but there's a lot of like family questioning and pressure for that. So I'm like, look, I have my own family. They're beautiful. They're so good. <laughs> look at all my kids. <laughs> but I feel like a face swap has kind of replace that for me. Snapchat will do it for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I always have like odd, odd little projects going like something I'm really interested in is seeing how I can use type and environments. So coming up with lettering that maybe the letter forms themselves are not the focus or they're a partial focus. Really there's like a greater image or idea at hand. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's somewhere I want to want to go. I'm always looking to like different kinds of objects and materials. And it's hard because you, you want to push yourself, but you also don't want to be so complicated in your idea that you can't execute it. And I find myself doing that all the time <laughs> where I, I start thinking about something like, Oh, this would be amazing. And then I have to be like, okay, how much, how much is this going to cost? How much time is it going to take? And trying to dial that back so yeah. that I'm not burning myself out. And so I found I work really well with like, quick little bursts of, of small fun projects. And then like maybe a couple that take a few days and then bigger things that take a while. Like I just finished a pinata. <laughs> I've been building it since <laughs> October and I really didn't know how to do it when I started. So there's that. <laughs> obvious, obvious side gig project is build a pinata, of course. Right. Right. I know it's so sensible. <laughs> Do you fill it with all of your past projects? You know, that would have been a really smart thing to do. (laughs) I bought coordinating candy. There was like, I I feel like I almost go through these manic situations where like for a month, the people at the party store saw me every single day. I was like, hey guys, what's up? You want to see what I'm doing this? No, you don't care? Okay. (laughs) 
but that's just, I think it's almost when people hire me for something, it generates new ideas, you know, new, like, Oh, I could be doing this as well. And then I have to figure out how to parlay that into something else. So, so you've used all these, uh, crazy different materials from coffee grounds to bed sheets, to shrimp, crab legs, (laughs) What have you found to be some of the most uh, challenging materials or what, what materials have you been most into that you maybe didn't expect to be? You know, pasta is really fun and it's fun because it's hard. Really with pasta, most people would think to just use it dried, mm-hmm. but I've used it wet several times and it turns out you have a very limited time window. You have to get it just the right um the right level of al dente and it has to have certain starches in it for you mm-hmm. to be able to do anything with it or it won't work. And so there's also like a size variation where you can't make it too large or you're, you're going to need too many pieces to kind of fill in loops and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it will stand once it starts to harden. So that has been a really difficult material, but it's one that I, when I get it to work, I really love it. I enjoy things like shoelaces or ribbon. They're things Mm -hmm. that feel like they should have life. They should be bouncy. They should have curls and coils. And I, whenever I've seen people use them, they're usually like stapling them to the, to the board or they're trying to, they lose that sense of looseness. Mm -hmm. And so I find that I enjoy materials where you can lean into whatever its inherent quality is and you're not fighting it. You're kind of just like guiding it. You're having a conversation with it where you're asking it where it wants to go and then you're making adjustments to compromise with the material. And I think, yeah, I think that's pretty, pretty applicable to most, most disciplines as well. Very cool. You were talking a little bit before um, we got started about a project you're doing with miracle grow and kind of the, Mm -hmm. the circle of life of the project itself. So tell us a little bit about that story. Miracle Grow contacted me through Space Junk, which is a local agency here in Columbus. That's unusual. I don't usually get to work locally on things like this. Uh, But they invited me to be part of this maker grower concept where they paired me up with a farmer who specializes in florals. And they brought both of us onto her farm. And all day long, they observed us on camera, walking around, picking her flowers, looking for things, um, and similarities between the two of us in the way that we work. And they brought me to um, her barn and we constructed this beautiful piece that said grow together out of her flowers and ferns and, and all kinds of foliage. So it was this really beautiful experience of being, first of all, in nature all day. Usually the sets that I'm on are, are very cold and dark. <laughs> and with this, we're outside in the sun and I'm starting to like pass out because it's a little too warm. And she's like, I'm outside all day. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I need water. I'm delicate. Um, <laughs> she, it, just the opportunity to be surrounded with an amazing, beautiful scent, gorgeous colors, and just this natural place, this natural environment. I was watching her people bundle these huge flowers and take them back for um, processing. And it just felt like I was in some sort of like French impressionist painting. It was just such a moving but relaxing experience. And then getting to work on the final piece and having her be so excited about it was fantastic. But even more so, I went to shoot B-roll for this at an urban space to contrast. You know, she's in, in the country, I'm in the city. And we moved to the, the urban space and I look next door and I see the flowers that we cut sitting in the restaurant on the tables next door. And I was like, whoa, I just saw the full life cycle of these flowers and that never happens. So getting to see the person who spent time and care growing it, hoping that someone else gets enjoyment out of it. It was really cool to add like this extra, look at this artistry or um, look at this additional purpose that these things find so that they're not just dying on a, on a table in a vase. They're also like becoming immortalized as something more. And so I like this idea of like elevating common objects into something more extraordinary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So most of our guests are what we would classify as obsessed at some level with design, which is sort of the point of the name of the show. Yes. (laughs) So what would you say that you are most obsessed with right now? I think for me, um, I saw a photograph floating around somewhere online 
And it was this image of order. Like the, it was just like a bundle of, I think flowers or, or fruit or something where it was just like, this is order. And it just looked like someone spilled it on the table. And then next to it was a contrasting image with all of the separate pieces kind of set out neatly in a grid. And it said it was labeled as chaos. And so I, I'm really enjoying this idea of like the natural order of the world is to be kind of wild and organic and a little sloppy And I think it's really fascinating that we as people come in and we apply some sort of precision Mm -hmm. and structure and intention to the things that we surround ourselves with. And so that idea is moving me right now because I feel like oftentimes we have it backwards. Yeah. You know, we are the ones creating chaos always, but it's a chaos that we understand. And so I like this, this idea of like a gale force of, purpose. <laughs> I think there's a Yoda quote in there also. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would assume that you're probably running all of your own social media channels and all of your Instagram stuff and that to take us through kind of your your thoughts on self-promotion and mm-hmm. what extent you feel like that's helping just kind of get your name out there or is that getting you speaking gigs or talk mm-hmm. us through your take on that. Well, social, <laughs> social is kind of like this never ending machine. I, I remember when I was first starting out, I read an article about three hats that every designer wears and, you know, you're either a creator, you're an editor or you're a marketer or yeah. And so most people excel at one of those things. They're kind of like passable at a second and they are completely dismissive of a third. And so I started looking at myself critically and went, I feel very much like I am an editor, hardcore. Um, I struggle (laughs) to create, but without it, I can't edit and I do not market myself at all. And I wondered why that was. And it occurred to me that I was not proud of the work I was doing. Mm. So once I found this kind of respite or this manner of play, in my current body of work, I was like, okay, well, I've got the creation part down. I think I can handle the editing. Like I'm not editing so hard right now that I'm not finishing my work anymore, Mm -hmm. but now I need to figure out how to show it to people. And so I found if you could just be like remotely clever, putting it out, if you put out different content or at least wrote up a different presentation of it for each social channel, people, people loved it and they would share and they would enjoy it. And so I think there's, this aspect of if you treat all of your audiences, even if they overlap, like they're special, if you treat the people around you like they mean something to you, then you're going to tailor your message in the way that they can best understand. Mm-hmm. And you're going to really pursue being understood. You know, that's just what you're going to do. And so if you really believe in that, that's going to be the guiding force to how you interact. Like I realize on Pinterest, people don't need me to say, a ton of shit about what I've done. They don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, They'd be happy to click through to my website and read more. But on Instagram, I'm finding people are kind of split. They either want like a quick little blip or they want almost like a journal entry. And so sometimes I'll play with what that is. Um, For a long time, I found certain social channels responded better in certain time zones, like certain, my audience was better in certain places. Oh yeah. So I was, I was kind of, um, uploading my work at very specific times, but then the algorithm has since changed. And so that's kind of throwing everything. And so I'm still trying to come back and understand how that, how that happened um, or what they've done. And so I find everything for me in terms of social works, like a flow chart where I try it like, okay, what was the result? You know, do I need to change how I wrote this? Do I need to change my tent? Do I need to change my image that I'm posting? Is it just Mm -hmm. a, like a shitty image and did I pixelate it? somehow and compressing. And so there's a lot of like thinking through what I should have done or what I didn't do that is helpful really. And I think, like I said, just being intentional makes things much smoother and it's, it's actually more natural than you would expect. 
See, you said something uh, a minute ago that I want to come back to. And Mm -hmm. you said, so I was at the point where I wasn't editing something so hard that I'm not finishing it anymore. So was, Mm -hmm. was this an issue for a little while that you were spending too long in the editing stage? And what did, what'd that look like? Like, how'd you free yourself up, up from that? Yeah, that was exactly it for several years. While I was working all these shitty jobs, I was not, my self-confidence was so low that I'd start projects and I just wouldn't finish them. I'd be like, this is garbage. You can't decide on, on how this is supposed to look. You're going through a million iterations on Illustrator and you can't pick one path and follow it. And so I, I was like really frustrated. And it's when I started kind of thinking over, well, what do I, what am I so afraid of? I, I'm afraid of not being good enough. And of course, I'm comparing myself to like extremely well-known people and their skills and being disparate and (laughs) devastated that I can't match that. And so once I kind of relaxed in the fact that I wasn't going to be as good as them, that was, that freed me up. Um, I realized that I was fighting to be a vector, kind of a vector letterer. Mm -hmm. And that's not my skill. Um, It's too precise. I have too many options and the moves are, are cheap for me. Like I can change my mind all the time and there's no consequence. I can just make a bazillion iterations and of course nothing gets done. So I realized that was not helpful to me. So I had to move into like a, almost like a fine art design kind of situation where I might ruin something, but at least I would be thinking very hard about every move I made. I learned to celebrate my peers as they were improving. And it's funny how much this isn't necessarily related to the process of making the design, but it's simply just finding that it was okay to be me and it was okay to make the mistakes that I like making the things that aren't technically correct because it gave me a style. Like I say, style is a series of like calculated errors. And so I, I think <laughs> it is, <Love> it. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> so I find like learning to celebrate that was really important I wanted to be proud of, of what I thought was cool. And so once I became more comfortable doing that, then it was like, okay, well, no one is doing this weird thing um, where they're using food and it's like very typographically driven. It was like very, I saw like maybe two or three people doing this and it was like, I, I didn't have the design history. So I, I had no idea who could even possibly be out there doing this. It was just me searching online being like, I can't find anything and it doesn't have a name. So I'm going to give it a name and I'm going to make it something I pursue. That was, that was really it. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Well, it seems to be working for you because I was looking for examples of your work and it turns out you've worked for everybody. So congratulations, Target, Las Vegas, Washington Post, School of Advertising Arts. Your work's been on The Guardian, featured in Swiss Miss, CA, Nylon, BuzzFeed, and literally everywhere else. So <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but all of that, just to ask you, what what do you feel like has been your proudest moment so far as a designer? <sighs> oh, man. <laughs> That's so hard to say. I feel like I have so many for different reasons. Like, I guess um, I had one a few weeks ago doing a workshop in Austin where this woman Um, made a piece and it was like the most melancholy piece I've ever seen. It was made out of like five sprinkles. So it was minimal and it was resourceful and it was stark and it said empty nest. So it had this like black background kind of like ironic color, like poppy color, (laughs) this optimistic despair, I guess is what I want to say. And, Uh and I asked her about it. I was like, this is really interesting to me because I don't see many people pursuing tragic or sad versions of this work. And she goes, well, initially I came up with it because I didn't, I, I don't have kids in my house anymore. So when am I ever going to buy pop tarts or candy or these sort of things? I went, Oh yeah, well that is kind of sad. And she's like, when we were alone, she said, actually, you know, my daughter died tragically last year Mm -hmm. and I have no more children. And it just hit me in the chest. And I was like, Oh man. And she goes, but the upside to this is that I have absorbed my daughter's friends and her, I've been led into her world, even though she's not here anymore. And so I'm like a second mom to all of these people. And I just, I feel like I know her better, even though she's not here to tell me about herself. And so I guess the transformative power of someone using this way of thinking to heal themselves was really poignant and powerful for me. 
just kind of showed me the potential that this has to be really impactful for other people. I, that was very prideful for me. Um, there have been other projects where I've pushed myself really hard. I made a mural in, in March at South by Southwest and I've never seen a mural done before. And when they asked about it, I was like, or they asked me what I could do for the space. They didn't have a lot of room. And I was like a floor installation. Then they said, no, we really don't have the room. And I'm like, how about a mural? And they went, what does that look like? And I went, I will tell you when I figure it out, give me like a week. <laughs> <laughs> and so building that, building out the structure, handing those over to the builder, um, putting it together, having my agent, another friend um, come assist me on it. It just, that was such an incredible experience because it was so hard it was the most difficult thing I've ever done, but seeing people literally eat it up, like frenzied eating and just marveling and touching it and, and stepping back to read it, but also getting really close and realizing that they could pick it off the, pick things off the wall. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was like a tearjerker. I think even the first time I had a French client hire me because my, my studio name, I chose it with the intention of attracting international audiences, mm -hmm. which is why the blue is spelled so weirdly. It's a French feminine version. And then I got my, my French campaign was actually through target. It was for Canada. And so we had American or English and French. And I just remember like crying a little tear being like, Oh my gosh, you know, this worked this weird, this weird decision that I felt I had to make and I couldn't understand made sense. So I've had like weird little moments like that, that really make all of this worth, worth pursuing. And, and yeah, it's great. It made that one extra letter E's life worth living. Yeah. <laughs> that is a great way to look at it. <laughs> so what are some of your dream projects? What have you not tackled yet that you'd still love to do? Um, I would love to do a full length commercial. I would love to do, I've always thought this would be really cool as like credits for the ending of a movie. Like I could oh, see this yeah. almost being like on a conveyor belt and, making things that would just run, that would be so fun. I would love to do work with, um, with like bigger, bigger clients in the athletic field or in um, athletic industries or in the outdoor industries. I, I have a, like a dream list, but I know that there are, there are several, <laughs> there are several other kinds of people in pursuit of these things. So I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, I want to say, but I don't want to say, <laughs> is that awful? You can totally see your work on like an OK Go music video. Yes. Holy shit. Yes. I would love that. <laughs> if anyone can put me in contact with them, please. I would love that. That'd be so cool. <laughs> OK, listeners, you have one job. <laughs> OK Go. There you go. I'm no Russian space station, but, you know, I'll, I'll make it work. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Is there anything that you look out for in a project? Is Are there any particular red flags or things that help you know, okay, this is not, this is not a fit for me. I know you said with the whole vector thing when it's too mechanical or you can just make too many changes to it, but, but what else kind of helps you go? Mm, no, no, thanks. Yeah. I think, I think over time, as you're working for yourself, you develop this level of self-respect and it's not that you're trying to be self-respecting. It's just, you have enough people dick you around that you go, I don't want to not get my paycheck. I don't want to go through 20 iterations again. You know, mm. you have this kind of breaking point where you're like, this enough is enough. Enough is enough. And so I found that when clients rush changes where they, 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 I've either had people be very, um, this is what we want. This is what we want. This is what we want. I don't know. Can you move this on the sketch? And I'm like, I mean, it's a sketch, but if this is really important to you, yes, I can, I can do this for you. You know, if we've had, when I have not been on a set where the client can watch me and see how I'm putting time into this, I usually end up getting um, more questions for revisions. And that can be a little, that can be taxing. And so oftentimes I'll be like, Hey, it might make way more sense to have me come to you so we can work on this in real life and real time. And it'll minimize most of like the things that have to be done later. Mm -hmm. I found I've had a couple clients where they've been like, whatever you want, whatever makes sense to you, whatever looks good. And I realized that if they don't have a point of view going into our project, that someone is going to be disappointed. They're going to end up changing it anyway. It's not going to fit their needs. And so there's like this question of, if you guys don't know what you want, I can help you work through that and help with the creative direction or the, or the 
conceptualizing of these things, but I think it's important to know for them to know what they want. Um, and there are other simple things like people really digging you around on the price saying that, you know, your work isn't as valuable or, or they want so much of you and just you taking it on is, is not reasonable with the amount of work that you're doing, but they're not willing to compromise. I've had a couple of those where people go, this is what it is, but we want all of, we want like five or six images, but we only have like $500 and you're like, yeah, that's not reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm busy that day. (laughs) I have a root canal (laughs) (laughs) and every day for the next three months. Yeah. My dentist is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think so many of us are, as designers, we're either either blessed or ruined kind of by how we see the world. That it's, you know, we just see things and notice things. I wonder um, if there's anything in particular in the design world that just kind of drives you crazy right now. I think it's the idea of authenticity as a trend. That really bothers me because inherently that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like if if you're really an authentic person you don't have to push that like you don't have to try to like attract people who are authentic authentic people will come find you the right audience the right people will make their way into your life and it's just weird how i've seen it happen a couple times where people put together this campaign where they're like it is it's really authentic. You know, we're going to be naked on the front cover of something, but we all worked out really hard and had a huge diet and went tanning before we did this. And I'm like, then you didn't actually do it because where's the vulnerability really in that you're still keeping yeah. yourselves up. So I think like the motivation, the motivation should be more pure. And I, and I think that's maybe what bothers me. Um, I think, I think good work good work is inherently authentic. And I think if people just don't try so hard, it's probably okay. I guess also another similar thing is the idea of a creative lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That also bothers me um, because I feel like it, you can buy into any lifestyle simply by dressing that way. I mean, really base level. If you buy the clothes, people think you are a fill in the blank. If you take photos the way that, people who do certain things take photos, then you are, you know, considered part of this community. And really it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you believe that way or that you are acting. You're you're not generating work. The generating of the work is the thing that really establishes you as a, you know, designer or illustrator or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. I think when people glorify this lifestyle of being creative, it becomes more about like, how do we look cool rather than how are we, fulfilling any kind of purpose. Where do you go for inspiration? (laughs) Everywhere that is not anything I do. (laughs) I purposely, I sound so weird, like counterintuitive. I don't use Pinterest recreationally at all. No, I, not at all. I don't look, I very, I have very few people within the lettering community that I follow. I do not, um, dig through old books. Usually when I'm doing something, I'm trying to, when you have a career that embodies all of your favorite things and activities, that mm-hmm. means your ability to come down from that and to be recreational cannot involve those activities. Because <laughs> it comes work. And so for me, I find, um, I do a lot of athletic things. Like I, I skate, um, I've been walking and running a lot. I work out. I like to play soccer. I like to dance. Uh, I, I find when I go on walks oftentimes or when I'm talking to other people, I have this moment where I stop in the middle of the road and I pull something out of a bush and I go, that's the bowl of a five. Holy shit. <laughs> it's like the matrix. It's like it's growing there for me for years. And so you have this, it's, I feel like the, the inspiration to do amazing work is driven by all of your interests outside of your job. Mm-hmm. The most interesting designers are the ones who, are like athletic designers or people who design for a minority and that they live and breathe that lifestyle. People who, who have, you know, are interested in cooking or just really love movies. Like I think those people have a perspective and they have things that they care about, which makes their work interesting. And so 
you know, it's one thing to just love the idea of design and to talk about, you know, structure and margins and all these like things and principles, <laughs> but really it doesn't mean anything if it's not applied to real life, you know? Absolutely. Well, I, I think what's really, first of all, it's really interesting that you said you don't use Pinterest recreationally. I think people from 10 years ago would think that must've been a controlled substance, (laughs) but, but the fact that you don't follow kind of your contemporaries or your peers in the lettering space, I'm, I am really curious who some of your design heroes are people that you maybe looked up to as a student or, or other designers that got you interested in this in the first place. I guess the funny thing about that is that I was really ignorant of most of these people, <laughs> really ignorant because I just wasn't schooled in it. I didn't know. Yeah. So when I think of like my heroes, I, I, I guess came up in school knowing about like Jessica Hish and Eric um, Marinovich and Mikey Burton and, oh gosh, um, Dana Tenamachi. But in finding them, I realized like, I don't, I didn't want to do work that was like them because the last thing I wanted was to get an email from one of these people being like, Hey, you're really cool. Stop stealing my shit. And so, <laughs> I mean, I, was, <laughs> I didn't want to be mortified that badly because at that point I probably would have picked a different career. So I was like, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I have people in the community that I admire deeply for what they do. Um, I guess Craig Ward is a fantastic person. He has this very kind of like rigid scientific approach to data realization using objects and food. And it's mostly objects now, but he, he just has such a different, it's, it's very mechanical. It's very masculine. It's sparse and stark and it's very beautiful. I don't want to look like that. And it sometimes depresses me when I'm, um, planning an idea. And then I find out, Oh, he's already done a version of this oh, shit. And so I have to figure out if there's a way to adjust it. So it doesn't communicate the same way yeah. or same thing as um, Sean Freeman. Sean Freeman is just an incredible, he's a British, um, British kind of like dimensional typographer. And he's also used food, but his is more of a controlled, like he baked cupcakes into certain shapes and then frosted them meticulously or, Um, He does a lot with like Christmas lights. He uses molds and casts. So he has this high class version, very editorial, usually black and white. It's extremely heavy looking, but it's beautiful and it's aggressive. And I think I would consider those two people I admire. I don't know if I would call them my peers because (laughs) I mean, they're doing wonderful stuff and they have their own studios and whatnot. But it just, I don't know what they've done. I admire it, but only because I've discovered it in the last couple of years and recognize, recognize their skills. So I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't playing with your food? (laughs) (laughs) Um, crying in a cardboard box. Um, I was really sad when you said you have to stay away from the things that you love in your work if you want to be inspired by them, because I really like food. So I think that would. (laughs) I mean, I eat food. I love eating food. Um, I love eating great food, but I'm able to compartmentalize that as something I want to shove in my face versus something I want to stick my head. I have standards, limits. (laughs) it's, it's, It's interesting how that works. I wish I were. I I wish I could be less compartmentalized, but I've been so fluid with everything that I just realized when I am burnt out, I need space. But yeah, I think the best inspiration comes from somewhere you wouldn't expect at all, because then that is when it's truly new. I feel like T.S. Eliot has a great quote on that about the whole like bad artists steal good or bad artists copy good artists steal or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, his, his thought on that is like, you know, when you're inspired and you're really doing something well, you're taking inspiration from someone from a different language, a different time, or a different interest. And I feel like those are amazing points in terms of like, if you really want to diversify and distinguish yourself as something individual and real, put your energy in, in different places. Look to the past, you know, dream about the future, 
find a hobby, you know, take on a new, a new language or a new system and, and explore it that way. And I, I think that's, there's a lot of wisdom to be had there. But maybe it's why that quote keeps getting stolen and appropriated to Picasso. <laughs> Serves him right. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think you'll be doing 10 years from now? I mean, I love thinking ahead and planning and talking about the future. I love that. I really don't know, but it's weird because this is the first time in my life where I've been remarkably okay with that. Um, I think I like to think of the work I have done, like where I've played around with all these different interests and couldn't get them to click. And then the work I'm doing now where I'm very focused, even though it's a, sub genre or niche. I think those things are like breadcrumbs to a greater path. And so at some point I'm sure I will take pieces of these, of this line of work and be like, okay, you know, I, I could still use photo here or I could still mm-hmm. use lettering here or, you know, I, maybe I don't want to tell stories as much as I want to do like quick bursts of something and, and feelings. And so I think there's a lot of application in what I'm doing, none of what I'm doing right now is wasted, but what I'm doing in 10 years might not be anything like what I'm doing at this moment. So I, mm. I deeply enjoy lettering and type and expressing things in that way. And I hope that that's always a focus, but we'll see. I mean, we'll really see. And I think the important thing is to be open and fluid to those changes. Well, I think you've, it seems like you've had a lot of opportunities to speak at conferences and talk to young designers and provide advice. So what would you say is the best piece of advice either you've received or your, your favorite piece of advice to pass along to other designers? <laughs> the quintessential, I don't, I don't oh man. <laughs> I think, I think I would tell people to be kind to themselves. Like a lot of the stressors that we feel in, in coming into our own involved, not feeling like we're getting there fast enough. We are not good enough. Like, I guess we, we design people are inherently self-conscious. It's why we get wrapped up in protocol and looking cool and, and doing all of these things or saying all these things we're supposed to. So we feel like we fit in regardless of what work we do. And I think if you can just, accept who you are and accept what your skills are, your limitations, you will find something that gives you meaning and purpose. And when you find it, do not apologize for it. I, I hate when I go to conferences and I ask someone what they do and they tell me they sheepishly, you know, do web, but that's, you know, I mean, they're probably not going to do it forever. And maybe they let her on the side and, and, you know, like trying to (laughs) like validate what it is that they what, what it is that they're not doing. And I'm like, you know, there is purpose in web. Web is driving the world right now. It is how we communicate with everyone from all over. You know, that is a noble, that's a noble pursuit. Yeah. It's not trendy. Who cares? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, if it's what you love, who gives a shit? So yeah, that's, that would probably be it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Danielle, it has been such a pleasure to catch up with you today and hear more about your story. Um, before I let you go, tell us where people can find you online and where the best places for people to connect with you would be. Sure. I am a social media hound, so <laughs> kind of everywhere. Um, you can find me fairly regularly on Instagram and Twitter at both Marmalade Blue and Food Typography, um, usually more so on Marmalade Blue. I'm on a Snapchat right now with the youth. Um, you can find me at m-blue, but it's spelled B-L-E-U-E. You can find me on Dribble, Pinterest, Tumblr at foodtypography.com, marmaladeblue.com, and then any of my various weird little side projects like meantrills.com, yourbabiesbeautiful.com. <laughs> I, there's probably more places you can go. Facebook is really kind of for my mom and anyone from high school. But if you want to go along there, feel free. <laughs> All right. So generally we can just Google Marmalade Blue and then follow the first three pages of links to all of your social media sites. Right. Exactly. That one for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll definitely link up to all of that stuff on the show notes. And uh, thanks again for chatting with us. And thank you for being obsessed with design. 
Can you guys believe that that is show number 20 in the books? Thank you so much for listening to Obsessed with Design. I'm so excited to see the show growing and all of the fantastic guests that we have had for the first 20 episodes. I'd love your help to recruit the next guest on Obsessed with Design. We're looking for designers of all kinds, graphic designers, illustrators, architects, product and process designers. You tell me who you'd like to hear next. Tweet to at Obsessed Show or at Josh Miles, and we will do our best to get your request live on the show. So until next time, thanks for listening. Obsessed Show is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon. You can check us out online at milesherndon.com.